Blog Talk Radio. This is The Long Road to Ruin, and I am your host, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radledge. Tonight, tonight we are uh, tonight's going to be our last show for a while. We will uh, say goodbye to summer. Goodbye, summer! Uh, with our show tonight, in synerg- synergistic fashion, with the Jason Bourne movie that was reviewed yesterday by myself and Robert Winfrey. Tonight, we will be looking at the Jason Bourne trilogy. You, Jeremy Renner, you get out of here, you, 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 Aaron Cross, you, you don't belong here. We'll be looking at the, the Bourne identity, the Bourne supremacy, the Bourne ultimatum, the Bourne conundrum, the Bourne pickle, the Bourne, the Bourne yesterday. We'll be looking at it all. Um, and I'll tell you, it's, it's a classic example of why I like to do this show uh, as it gets me out of my comfort zone. You know, I like my, I like my superheroes in spandex. Folks, I said this to Robert Winfrey last night. If you're going to show me a man who can cut through human beings like a hot knife through butter, I want him to be wearing a loud costume, okay? <laughs> I want I want fancy, fancy schmancy uh, insignias on him. I want him to possibly be from another planet. Uh, I, I just want nonsense and circuses and monsters and robots. And uh, I don't. I'm not into a guy that looks like my dad. <laughs> able to take out entire armies with a single punch, but I do and I do know that people enjoy these things, and 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 to them I say good on you. So uh, why am I bringing that up? Well, because Long Road to Ruin is about is not just about looking at films; it's about it's about looking at films you've never seen before and uh, taking them taking them in as a whole. And so while I would not have watched the Jason Bourne trilogy uh, of my own volition, because uh, I don't buy Matt Damon as a Superman, uh, I, I've gone and done it. And we're going to talk about that tonight. But I'm not alone. I, of course, am joined by, he's not my sidekick. And if I called him my sidekick, he'd give me a sidekick. He just right upside the head. He is my co-host with the most. Uh, he's got all the facts. And I've got all the Angry Birds. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Hello, everybody. I'm Sean, you're not, and welcome to the week that I'm just subtitling, Sir, That Doesn't Work That Way. (laughs) Everywhere I look this week, everywhere I look, I'm coming across just things that make me say, Sir, That Doesn't Work That Way, which is slightly better than Sir, That Doesn't Go There. But... 
you know, for everything I've heard about about Jason Bourne, which is in theaters right now and doing very meh, um, the big complaint everybody has is that once more, Hollywood needs to have it just patiently explained to them. Gentlemen, computers don't work that way. <laughs> that's that. That's not hacking. You're. You're, you're button mashing. I can't tell if you're trying to infiltrate an NSA database or if you're playing Soul Calibur. <laughs> because if you're doing the latter, you're probably doing just fine. If you're doing the, if you're doing the former, had you just seen your very first computer five minutes before, sir? If I'm, and if it's not that, it's, and I promised Mark I wouldn't go on an extended rant about this for reasons I'll explain at the tail end of the show, um, it's looking at the buzz surrounding Suicide Squad and wanting to go to my fellow nerds and just say to them all, guys, Rotten Tomatoes doesn't work that way. We, uh... It, 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 it won't make... Shut, petitioning to shut the site down, well, number one, will be patently ignored, and number two, it won't make the bad reviews go away. It, it won't. They do, a, they do a podcast. I'm dying to hear them address this. The, uh, the the woman with the pink hair that 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 works on the site and the editor um, they do a weekly podcast and I haven't listened to it in a while because they've been doing a lot of Game of Thrones stuff which I don't watch but I I, I can't wait for the next podcast where they where, where <laughs> dear internet idiots <laughs> we're, we're not shutting the site down stop it uh, it's 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 the kind of You'd want to hear that on this one podcast, but of course, I mean, geek entitlement, it's nothing new. It's absolutely nothing novel whatsoever. I mean, with with the amount of time that I've always said, I consider YouTube to be geek ESPN, especially when it comes to gamers. And and I I listen to enough rants by Total Biscuit and Jim Sterling especially to know that this is absolutely nothing new. Um, you know, but it just it's it's hilarious because you just want somebody to pat to patiently explain to them, honey, Rotten Tomatoes isn't writing the reviews; they're just compiling and averaging them. It's you're making about as much sense as Beyonce is saying that she wants the internet to take the funny pictures away. <laughs> that okay. That, that's a, you're supposed. You're all the ones that are supposed to know better. You would think, right, that if you can find this, the website that's got the online petitions, you would also find the, the sense to realize that Rotten Tomatoes isn't uh, isn't writing reviews. They are collecting reviews and posting them. But that, that's neither here nor there. We also have a guest tonight. Um, so while I sit here and, and bang my head on the desk going, no, no, the guy from Goodwill Hunting, you know, I don't buy you punching people in the face and cutting through them that way. Andrew Graham is here to explain, look, not everybody has to put on spandex, you asshole. Hello, Andrew Graham. Hey, Mark. Hi, Sean. How are you guys doing tonight? Hey, Andrew. One of my very favorite is Canucks. <laughs> Take off, eh? <laughs> I can only assume... I can only assume you guys are talking about the whole Suicide Squad, Rotten Tomatoes kerfuffle that's going on. Oh, fuck me. Look, guys, if it's, if it's the individual bad reviews you assholes want to take down, you're thinking of Metacritic, 
Metacritic. That's the site you want to go. You want to go after. Which, well, quite frankly, they they'll ignore your stupid little petition too. But what's really comical to me about all this is, for all the petitioning, it ignores the fact that, and this is right out there on on Wikipedia. It's nothing new. Um, Pop quiz. Do you guys know who owns Rotten Tomatoes? Warner Brothers. Brothers. Warner Brothers has owned has owned them for the last four years. And they said when they bought them, they said, we have no intention of changing the fashion in which they operate. And to their credit, they haven't. They haven't changed that whatsoever. But you're, you're basically the point they're trying to make is your website is trying to screw your own movie. Or we it's, could just go to the really, the really out there theory and just say that, you know, Marvel fans and DC fans can like both uh, movies from both both brands and, you know, Say the ones that suck, suck. You critics just don't like the movie because you're all Marvel biased. You only want Marvel movies to succeed. So I've looked at a bunch of um, independent uh, reviewers on YouTube uh, mm-hmm. over the last week, and it, it's gone from this was fun but a mess to um, it's a mess. And that's pretty much the consensus on Rotten Tomatoes. You have your, hey, a fun time was had at the movies, although this was a jumbled mess written by a chimpanzee, mm-hmm. to this was written by a chimpanzee and it's a jumbled mess. That's it. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, 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 they are, the, the consensus has all been pretty much the same. And so the, you keep the, the, the criticism that, oh, well, the, the, the people who saw this movie, this isn't Ghostbusters, okay? There's no conspiracy here. This, this, isn't, a, this isn't like paid people to shit all over a DC movie. It can't possibly be when you have this many people this, this far and wide all pretty much coming up with the same opinion. Well, but you know what? If if I might bring this back around to the trilogy that we're about that we're about to lob onto the autopsy table here, I think what a lot of this comes back to is the fact that for many people, the whole point of going to the movies is they want to have fun. They they want to enjoy themselves in in some fashion or another. They want there to be something thrilling, but also something that's satisfying about it. It's one of the other complaints that I keep hearing about Jason Bourne is the idea that it's very preachy. It tries a little too hard to be topical. Um, it, uh, it, tries, it tries a little bit too hard uh, to, be, to be updated and to be of the times, so much so that it kind of feels like you're just being beaten over the head with a rash of CNN headlines and Edward Snowden interviews, which probably not coincidentally, this is coming out at the same time that hype is building for Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Snowden. But the whole thing about Suicide Squad and that keeps coming up about a lot of the DC movies is the fact that there is this really weird false association that... Being appealing to it, being appealing to adults, to movie-going adults, by necessity means it has to be violent, it has to be grim, it has to be dark, gritty, depressing. It has to basically leave 
basically be of the kind of tone that has you leaving the theater just about hating yourself and pretty much <laughs> and pretty much everything around you. Whereas anything else, anything that dares endeavor to have a, a happy ending, um, that dares to offer a little to offer a little bit of levity, that dares to offer something colorful, well, by default, that's made for children. Uh, that, that's that's about that's about the dichotomy. Which and, you know, I would, and the number one movie in the world right now is Captain America, followed by Zootopia, followed by The Jungle Book. Shush, 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 shush. Don't, 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 don't tell the the. Don't tell the, the super mature grown-ups that. <laughs> You'll fuck with their whole universe. That if it isn't, like, blacks and grays and brown, grays and browns and whatnot, that it, that, that, that it all of a sudden for the little baby girls. Don't. You, you'll mess with their whole worldview. Nobody wants to have to clean up that many brains off of walls. What was that, Andrew? I only work in black or very, very dark gray. <laughs> Thank you, Lego Batman. <laughs> that's I well, love that's, that. That's, and, that's, and that's the really sad part is when I saw when I finally saw the Lego movie, and I, I and I saw I saw Lego Batman and heard Will Arnett's performance. I went, I hate the fact that this really isn't all that far off. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's get into this now. Uh, so we have these three films: *The Born Identity*, *The Born Supremacy*, and *The Born Ultimatum*. They are adaptations of the spy uh, thriller books written by Robert Ludlum. Uh, the first coming out, I believe, in 2002, then 2004, and then we've wrapped up in 2007 with *The Born Ultimatum*. Um, they follow this. They follow the same sort of, uh, especially the, the second and the third movie. They follow the same sort of pattern, where we have uh, Matt Damon who, who doesn't remember anything, and then uh, you know, he, he is seeking. He is seeking to find information. He's trying to, you know, especially in the first one, he's trying to figure out who the hell he is. Um, and then you ha- and then he becomes known to the CIA, and then and then you have these scenes of the CIA banging on computers like monkeys on meth, uh, trying to find him, and then running people running in and out of the room, going, "Oh my God, that's Jason Bourne!" Um, there's always an asset that's trying to kill him, and they'll say the word "asset" at least 50 times. The movie, thank you, uh, Screen Junkies, it's an honest trailer for that. Um, there'll be uh, two or three. Large, sec- large action pieces. One gigantic car chase. A final, uh, a final boss battle. And uh, at the end, he will tell the CIA to go fuck itself. Um, <laughs> somewhere along the line, he'll expose a program here and do a thing there. Uh, and, and that's and that's the Born trilogy in a nutshell. Sean, ha- um, what do we, what do you got for us tonight? Go into your bag of tricks, sir, and and. Uh, I always ask, like, you know, where where did this come from here? What what do you got for us tonight? You got any history for us? How did we get here? What's going on? Well, sit yourself down, Markiplier, and if you're not careful, you might learn something. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a very good reason why I regard the first movie in the series as 
the best of any of them. Not just the best of the original Damon trilogy, but that also throws the we'd really rather not speak of it, Jeremy Henner born legacy in there. And the, if I'm being perfectly honest, I'm probably not going to see it at all. Jason Bourne into the mix. Um, is he part of that comes from the fact that I have a deep conviction that when it comes to adaptation, the best finished products come from people who are working both producers, directors, writers, performers alike who are working from a genuine abiding love for the source material. They just happen to get it. So in that sense, the start of the born, born, I hate to do this again, invoking that shitty ass um, uh, Jeremy Henner movie, Um, the born legacy, uh, the father of it is, really not so much Universal Studios individually as it is uh, a fellow by the name of Doug Lyman. Now, that's going to sound familiar to some people because the second movie he ever directed was a little 1996 indie gem starring Bruce Vaughn and John Favreau called Swingers. Uh, earned him a nod for the MTV Movie Award nod for Best New Filmmaker, but while he was making this really interesting, fresh, kind of edgy, kind of quotable, darkish indie qu- indie comedy, um, he sort of had his sights set a little bit higher, namely on the fact that he had a serious mad on practically from the beginning for making uh, The Born Identity, in large part because this was his favorite novel when he was in high school. He was so high on this movie's potential that after Swingers, he would then proceed to spend two years acquiring the film rights from Warner Brothers, another year scripting the movie with Tony Gilroy, and then another two years actually putting the movie into production. Um, Now, again, the important thing to remember is it's an adaptation. It's not a shot-for-shot, word-for-word mirroring of the source material like, say, Sin City or a good bit of the Harry Potter movies or the Lord of the, the, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Uh, no. Uh, the thing was, was he actually took a lot of liberties with it because he was inspired in places by uh, his father's by his father's own um, NSA memoirs, uh, specifically regarding his father's interaction circa the Iran-Contra scandal with um, uh, Oliver North under President Reagan. So he's speaking from a place of very, not maybe not first-hand experience, but uh, extremely close second-hand experience in terms of the way that he really retailored Robert Ludlum's original book. Um, he actually cut out a great deal of the novel to do just that um, and to kind of mold the narratives to his own uh, American foreign policy beliefs. Um, In fact, there's a running theory among a lot of observers, and to the best of my knowledge, and as always, I throw this out there, if anybody can kind of prove me wrong, feel free to throw it out, but I didn't come across this, 
is that the character of Alexander Conklin, played by Chris Cooper, uh, sort of the head federal suit who is hunting, who is directing the hunt for Jason Bourne, is in fact based on his own father's recollections of Oliver North. So if that seems familiar to a lot of people, well, there you go. That's why. He comes across as an Oliver North type because, well, he basically is a fucking Oliver North type. Um, And there is an interesting story in that we very nearly got a really different looking movie on a lot of fronts. Uh, First off, we have to play the what might have been casting game, my favorite and yours. Um, Now, since since I'm a clever little such and such, and also because I'm a giant Kingdom Hearts nerd, I am going to refer to the people who almost played the title character as the Unborns. Uh, People who very nearly played Jason Bourne instead of Matt Damon. Can I say it once? Matt Damon. Um, I had to get in the Team America thing at least once. Yeah, by all means, get it out your system. <laughs> um, Matt Damon in the movies. Hi, Robert Winfrey. <laughs> <laughs> so our five unborns who nearly who nearly played Jason are we have the likes of Brad Pitt, Russell Crowe, Tom Cruise, Sylvester Stallone. And Arnold. So, so th- there you go. Yeah, there you go, uh, uh, Marky Moo. Um, I kind of, I kind of bit my tongue as you were rattling off the whole spiel about I don't want to watch a hero that looks like that looks like my dad. Well, <laughs> you very near, you very nearly got your wish a few times. Got your wish a few times over. In fact, if uh, Hey, if they cast Tom Tom Cruise, uh, you would have had uh, had an ass kicking government assassin who was, uh, yeah, by all indications, roughly about the height of my favorite YouTuber, Dodger. <laughs> he would have um, been beating the guys to death with several books that he was standing on. What was that? He would have been beating guys to death with the several books he was standing on. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I can just imagine him being on, on like, I'm staying on like hardcover copies of, of Robert Ludlum novels. That that would have been a great little, a great little wink right there. Um, so, what what was it you may be asking that made them decide? Um, let's see, Brad Pitt, nah. Guy from Gladiator, nah. Um, the Munchkin, the Munchkin with the chiclet teeth. Nah. Rocky? Nah. Terminator? Nah. Will Hunting? Ding, 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 ding. What was it that made them decide this? Well, for starters, um, Damon really understood how Doug Lyman wanted to set this apart from a lot of other action thrillers. And that was the fact that Lyman was really committed and really hell-bent on keeping his take on the story uh, really character-oriented um, and really personal and focusing a lot focusing a lot on 
on Jason and God, I always do this when I'm on the air. Um, blanking on the name of on the name of the character, uh, the one played by Franca Potenta. I almost I almost uh, called her El- Marie. Yes, thank you. I I almost called her Elsa. Can you believe that? Um, <laughs> let it go, Sean. Let it go. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, but and he understood that Lyman wanted to really emphasize the the cat and mouse plot over over the action over the battles over over the chases uh the real the real subtlety of each side trying to get one step ahead of the other one um in addition to all of that damon and you know all the props in the world to him for this uh, insisted that he wanted to perform the vast majority of his own stunts he really wanted to do everything the hard way. And uh, as I've said many times over the course of the, God, I can't believe I must say this, the four wonderful years I've been doing this show, uh, my heart really goes out to modern action stars who want to do that. Because the best action, in my opinion, has always been when the performers got out of their comfort zone and were really willing to get their hands dirty, take the bumps, take the bruises, take the broken bones, um, kind of put life and limb at risk, and really strive for some authenticity. And to that end, that's also why Damon spent three months of weapons, boxing, and escrima training uh, to be convincing as a federal sleeper agent. That's all the good news. The bad news is... Over the course of production, Doug Lyman sort of dug his grave with Universal deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper because uh, although you can watch the finished product and you can say, ah, you know what, it was all totally worth it. it. It all panned out exactly as it should have. I can't imagine you doing it any differently. Universal did not fucking feel that way. Uh, he became notoriously difficult in that he refused to budge on the exact way he wanted to produce this movie. Uh, Universal wanted him to shoot it in Montreal in order to save, to save costs. He insisted, no, not only will I shoot in Paris, whether you like it or not, I want an entirely French-speaking crew. Uh, that it was like period end of story. That is what I, that is what I want. You will give you will give this to me, damn it. Um, along the way, uh, the actual finale really didn't test all that well with audiences. He really had to fight to keep that fight to keep that in there. Um, in fact, both he and Damon alike. Uh, had to really go to bat and stand off of the studio just in order to keep the farmhouse scenes. Um, after the studio wanted pretty much the entire third act uh, rewritten, uh, just uh, totally, totally reworked. Um, all I'll tell you, out, there's humanity in this. There, there's what now? <laughs> as the studio head, how dare you have a sense of humanity in this movie? Get get these oh, characters out of here. 
Well, well, no, you're not wrong because what they wanted was they wanted a faster-paced movie with bigger action, which, of course, eventually was exactly what Paul Greengrass was wanting to give them. But I'll get to that. In, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, and as it came down to the wire, um, reshoots and rewrites just delayed the release further to the point that by the time it actually hit theaters in June 2002, nine months after it was originally scheduled to, uh, it was $8 million over its original $160 million budget. Now, as now as the first movie goes, was it worth it? Oh, fuck yeah. Um, 83% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Rave reviews the whole way, the whole way around, and it. Oh, you know what? I stand corrected. I stand. I'm sorry. My own handwriting. Uh, I I drew. I drew. Yeah. I I drew to do to do. I do my dollary dues. Um, <laughs> I draw my dollar signs with two lines through them, and one of them was a little bit misplaced. It was a sixty million dollar budget. So ultimately on what ended up being right around a $68 million expenditure, the movie grossed $214 million at the box office. Now, before we get into the next couple movies, I'm going to go ahead and just state this briefly so we can go right into them when the time comes. Uh... Afterwards, Universal became a little bit hell-bent on alienating just about everybody else who worked on the first movie, except for Damon. Uh, when the time came, the studio kind of got Damon to go back on his, on his idea that he originally said, well, Doug and I always said we only want to do a sequel if the story's really good. Well, as it happened, Universal did want a sequel, and of course, there was a second novel out there that could be adapted. Uh, Tony Gilroy came back to work on the script. Matt Damon came back. Studio wanted absolutely fuck all to do with Doug Lyman again. And hence, they brought in Paul Greengrass. And as a result, what we ended up getting was a much faster-paced movie with lots of action instead of the plot, camera work that will have you thinking that thinking that they brought on a 105-year-old Parkinson's disease patient as a cinematographer, <laughs> and really very little of the focused, tight shooting and cerebral development that made the first movie so damn great. By the time the third movie rolled around, Gilroy wanted to get back to writing something with more character, to the extent that his original idea was, let's send Matt Damon out there on a, on a quest of redemption to find himself, to finally put all of this behind him and really come to grips with his past. What did Universal say? <laughs> fuck that. Uh... No, uh, Gilroy, I believe, when he was last interviewed and asked about the Bourne Ultimatum, said that he hadn't even watched the finished copy of the movie ever because it contained barely anything that he had worked on by the time that he was let go from the entire process. And 
for the life of me, I can't understand why this movie has got the high has got the highest freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes, i.e. over 90%, when it's basically a carbon copy of the second. There's really nothing all that special or distinguishing, except for the fact that at the time, it really seemed to bring Jason Bourne's entire story full circle to an end. I mean, it contained a lot of nods to the first movie, lots of referential dialogue, and a decent story, but otherwise, I like the first one because it's the most polished, it's the most sophisticated, and it's the movie that doesn't just go hard, just go all out every every second of every minute for that big, orgasmic, slam-bang action feel. I mean, there's a build to the action scenes. There's a sensibility to them. And aside from that, they're really thoughtfully shot and put together. And, Andrew, I mean, you being the Ron Lynch and Broadcasting Network's real resident, experienced martial arts expert, I'm sure you'd probably agree that it's also probably the finest choreographed. Uh, that part, if I had, I'll get into it a little bit, but we'll, we'll hit this movie by movie. If I, if I have to really put it succinctly, just with a general recommendation before we get into the specifics of each one. Um, I normally hate comparing these to the Bond movies, although that's what a lot of people will do, despite the fact that this isn't a goddamn spy movie. It isn't. It shares more DNA with, well, obviously, original author, the late Robert Ludlum and Tom Clancy than it does with Sir Ian Broccoli. But just for the sake of argument, if you like The Hunt for Red October, if you like, I believe, Patriot Games was the second of the Jack Ryan movies, if you like those two and you like... Casino Royale. You'll love the first movie. On the other hand, if your bag is more Quantum of Solace, then chances are you're going to you're going to love the Born Supremacy and the Born and the Born Ultimatum. But that's a matter of both aesthetics and the scripting process. But for now, let's go ahead and dive headlong into a movie that I absolutely I, that I absolutely love, that I'm pretty sure Andrew absolutely adores, and that Mark amiably tolerated for the good of both of us. <laughs> all right, um, I want, yeah, let's let's get right into the Born Identity, my favorite of of all four Born movies that I've seen so far, um, having not seen the Aaron Cross one. But uh, as I always like to do. Andrew has waited so patiently, and he was so excited to be on this show. Andrew, what what draws you into the Born series so much that you wanted to come on this podcast and share your words of wisdom? Uh, what's what's the attraction for you? Uh, improvising, uh, reading materials is offensive weapons. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, meeting of someone with a rap with, with a rap magazine, I think it was. <laughs> And a, and a hardcover book in the third movie, but we'll we'll get to that one. Um, it's kind of funny. I kind of ended up uh, not actually inter- even getting introduced to the to the Bourne movies 
until uh, seeing the second one. And I think it was probably on one of those movie services. And I think I'd caught, you know, last 10 minutes of the, of the first one a few times. But once I'd seen the second one all the way through, I started going through, going back to the first one. And I just, you know, I just appreciated the quality of what they were putting together in, in all three movies in terms of scripting, in terms of character, in terms of um, groundedness, in terms of interaction, casting, you know, you name it. And and this movie definitely from – this series actually from every aspect has a certain amount of quality to it from, you know, who you cast as character actors going right through. And, I mean, I think they're they're all very engaging. They're very thrilling. They – they all aspire to be smart, and uh, no, I just think they're you know great movies, and they have absolutely fantastic fight scenes. Which uh, over the years, I've as I've trained in different things, I've I've kind of grown a, a greater appreciation of. All right, um, I'm going to keep my plot synopsis short so that we can have a little bit more discussion time, give Andrew a little bit more opportunities to speak. Um, so the born identity goes something a little like this, and again, I, I'm not. Let's not get too picayune here with this. I, I'm skipping a lot of things and just getting right to the point. We have uh, we have a man in the water uh, who's been shot. He is drawn upon a boat, operated on, and when he comes back to life, uh, he does not know who he is or why he's there. This movie then proceeds. Uh, he he then proceeds through the movie to try to figure out who he is, and and along the way he picks up a. Uh, he picks up a gal who takes him to Paris, and he starts to learn little by little about who he is, and he figures out that I am a CIA assassin, or as he will be called at the end of the movie, a piece of malfunctioning equipment, which is the greatest line in the history of these movies. I love that. Um, you are malfunctioning! <laughs> Great. So um, we have the situation here where he is a CIA assassin who uh, who had a crisis of conscience, um, which resulted in him being shot up and, uh, and tossed out to sea. Uh, and what he realizes by the end of the movie is that, he, is that he no longer wants to be a CIA assassin. And the CIA isn't having it, and therein lies your struggle. Uh, he ends up uh, doing battle with his handler, and in the end, he wa- uh, the handler dies and he walks away. And the handler is killed and he walks away from, uh, from the CIA. Um, and as I said, there, there are less fight scenes in, uh, there are less fight scenes in this one. There's more pathos. There's more, uh, you're, you're, I feel like you're more with Jason Bourne as a person in the first movie, um, where he's, you know, he's trying to sort of memento style, put the pieces of his life together as he finds them. And then, you know, I, you know you just, just imagine, you know, you're in his shoes. You don't know who you are. You're scared. You're, you, you, and then as things are happening, you suddenly realize, like in the Matrix, you have these crazy abilities you didn't know you had, like to speak Dutch, you know, or to smash people over the head rather fast. Um, and, you know, and it's crazy, and, and, and it can be a very scary thing. And then, to, then ultimately to find out that you're a horrible murderer. You know? And Matt Damon, as much as I, you know, we like to make fun of him, um, handled the "I've got blood on my hands" horror uh, of his identity very well. I, I think he brought a lot to the character. Um, the next two movies, not so much, but in this one, at least, you know, struggling with the "I'm a horrible murderer" thing, I think he does a, I think he does a very, very good job. 
So um, well, let's talk about that for just a few minutes. I've sort of laid it out there that the big attraction, I think, for me, and I think the thing that makes The Born Identity a fascinating film is the, you know, is the piecing together the mystery of this man's uh, life and the coming to grips with the fact that he's a CIA assassin. Uh, I'm going to go to you first, Instagram. Um, let, let's talk about that. What are your thoughts on how the movie handles his uh, coming to find out who he is? I think that was really one of the, um, I think probably one of the finer parts about having, you know, uh, Matt Damon cast in there. I think one of the, the striking moments when I was rewatching the movie in preparation for this was going back to um, actually right before the first fight scene where he fights the two uh, police officers in the park. And, uh, you know, he's talking to him and he's, he's totally lost and he knows something weird's going on with himself because he has a laser in his leg and, and things like that. But he, um, you know, the, the police come up to him asking for his papers and they start, you know, kind of prodding him a little bit with one of their uh, batons and he grabs the baton in a very, you know, distinct manner. And then Damon puts this look on his face where it's like, okay, why am I doing this? And then, you know, the fight scene happens at the end of it, he ends up, you know, the two cops are down and he's, uh, he's pulled one of their stripped him of one of their guns and he's standing there and he's like, holy shit, what did I just do? And I mean, I think, um, you know, that's kind of a, and it keeps on going through it where he just kind of is going through this process of self-discovery to find out, you know, what skills he has, things like that. I mean, you know, even things like, you know, his look of shock when he opens up the safety deposit box in the bank in Zurich and, you know, it's like, uh, oh, my name is Jason Porn, great. And then he opens it and there's a gun and there's five other passports and there's a hundred thousand dollars in various currencies. And it's just a matter of him trying to, trying to figure out what he is and, and what he did and, I mean, even when you go to, you know, to skip ahead later that, you know, they kind of hint that the humanity that he shows throughout the rest of the movie had definitely asserted itself when when he attempted to assassinate Wombosi and basically his conscience got the better of him. So it's kind of this this interesting play of, of a few different characters going on here. One, kind of the Jason Bourne that we know, the Jason Bourne that was the weapon, and then the person that he originally was underneath. We'll talk a little bit about the villain uh, for a sec. And, Sean, you know, um, as always, feel free to piggyback on things we've already talked about if you want. But I also want to bring in the discussion of now the villain side of this thing, where, you know, movies like this, sometimes, you, you know, you can have a little bit too mustache twirly, too scene-chewing um, kind of a villain. And here you have much more, a much more complex villain in the sense that why are we here? Well, we're here to, we are the CIA and we're here to defend America and America's interests uh, here and abroad. And, you know, we, we might not be doing not nice things, but that's kind of our gig. And we put all this time and money into training this man to be a killer. And, you know, it, it really just sums up the whole position when he says, you are a piece of malfunctioning equipment. And on the one hand, you'd say, well, he's a human being and that's an awful thing to say to someone. And on the other there's a sense of patriotism at play here, whether, um, well, I'll let you, I'll let you speak on it. Uh, but my, my thought was, you can't be, I don't think you can be totally uh, 100% against the villain in this movie. I think he has a point of view 
and it's an interesting one, and I think it's it it adds to the enjoyment of the movie that it isn't you know he isn't Darth Vader, you know what I mean? So, um, so give me your thoughts, Sean, on the uh, on the the CIA villain. I can't remember what his name is now, but the uh, the the main handler that uh, that he has to deal with, the one who tells him he's a broken piece of equipment. Did I lose you, Sean? Andrew, <laughs> why don't you talk to me about the villain? <laughs> I, I, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. I'm sorry, my phone was on. My phone was on mute. I didn't realize it. Um, that's uh, that's Alexander Conklin, who is played by the wonderful Chris Cooper do, during that period when he was just coming off. It was a real breakout role in adaptation and was getting work just all over the damn place. Um, he and as I said, he is ostensibly an Oliver North analog. And I mean that in the sense of the part he plays in the whole plot. And I totally get what you're saying about how you can't really root entirely against him. And that's because he is that guy that, to borrow the movie cliche, and you know what, it's a cliche because it's in part true, and I say this from experience from having an uncle who is retired DOD, in that you need people who are willing to do the things that the politicians don't want to know about because they don't want to have to explain them to the horrified masses who keep them in office or who would otherwise keep them in office anyway. Um, And that is what Matt Damon is. And Conklin is basically the one who takes this malfunctioning piece of government equipment and points them at a target and essentially pulls the trigger. Uh, the idea being is that Bourne was sent on a mission to eliminate Nkwano Wambosi, who was an African dignitary who and forgive me, I, I yes, I realize before I before I trigger anybody with a microaggression and send them crawling into their safe spaces that Africa is a continent and not a country, but I can't remember which African country he was from. So, yeah, all I don't think they ever name it. So, so, so what now? I don't think they ever name it. I, you know, I, I don't think they, I don't think they did either. But it's possible they did, and I didn't just take note of it. So, just to to every pedantic little bastard who's getting their panties in a wad, just. Call my tip. I believe okay. I have the country right here. He was the president of Who Gives You Shit a Stand. <laughs> yeah, just, you know what? Just fucking call him, everybody. Anyway, um, they refer to him as an, as, um, an absolute, as basically an absolute nightmare now that he's in power. He's just a, pretty much an aggravation in general uh, to the U.S. And you kind of get the impression that, again, kind of invoking little ghosts of Iran-Contra there, that the U.S. was arguably, possibly, kind of, maybe, sort of, maybe indirectly example for him coming into power in the first place. Um, And he actually became such a bad idea come to life that uh, they sick born on him to assassinate him, to get him out of power, to theoretically make his boss's lives easier. Um, and obviously, again, 
these assassination missions are something that we would really rather not the constituents know about. Uh, only the problem is this one went a bit sideways is because when Bourne got aboard Wombothi's yacht and had a gun at the man's head ready to pull the trigger, uh, all of a sudden he looks down a little bit further and sees his two children curled up on their daddy. And yeah, that's when the bout of conscience hits, that's when he hesitated, and that was when he got shot and tumbled off the yacht into the ocean. Um, that's essentially what this comes down to is they were, is they, you know, programmed him to do a very dirty job. It didn't get done. Wombosi was still alive. And the problem was they needed to cover things up because Wombosi was ready to go public with the whole damn thing because he knew just exactly who was responsible and it had the potential to make a whole lot of people's lives utter gigantic, bleeding, stinging, living hemorrhoids of hell. Um, if word got if word got out that the, that the government was out was out there, you know, sicking sleeper agents on anybody that they felt was problematic. So kind of understand in that he was trying to clean up a very ugly mess that the United States got itself into. And for all we knew, it might have been because Wombosi was genuinely problematic as a leader. Um, it's it might have very well been because there were some things that he was into or some things that he was planning or some things that he was saying well before they ever sent Jason Bourne after him that really threatened to cause a lot of international upheaval. So you can look at it, and yeah, like you said, he's not Darth Vader. It's not a power grab that they're exactly after. Um, They're not sending... They're not sending Bourne to go and assassinate somebody so they can make it easier to come in and occupy some other, some other country or exploit its oil wealth or something like that. Um, it's just simply a man that's doing the job that he was handed, and the job he was handed was to balance the books. So while you're never exactly going to be watching the movie and go, woohoo, Team Conklin! Um, like like you like you said, Mark. Every time he, every time Chris Cooper enters a room, it's not like you're going to be hearing the Imperial March behind him. He actually, um, there are shades of Jack Nicholson's character from uh, a few Good Men here. Oh you yeah. Know, where he, oh yeah. Yeah. Where he has that speech um, right before uh, he says, "You know, you're damn right. I, you know, I told him beat him, beat him with a sock or whatever it was they do in the movie." Um. Uh, open a sock, uh, give him the Kobayashi Maru, whatever they call it. Um, <laughs> red alert, or code red. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, he says it, like, you, you need people like me on there. Well, I'm the one that provides your freedom. It's a dirty job, and someone's got to do it, yada, 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 smack me. Uh, yeah. there's, a sense, yeah. there's a sense of patriotism, a sense of pride, a sense of, 
you know, I, I woke up this morning and was handed a terrible burden. I'm doing my job. You're, you're, um, you're basically doing the wrong things for what you perceive as the right reasons. Right. Um, so I think that brings there, – there are two things left to talk about that are the action sequences, and that is why Andrew Graham, I think, uh, one, one of the things he wanted to talk about. So why don't you go ahead and um, I'll let you lead this part of it, Andrew. Uh, lead us through a discussion of the, uh, the, the, real, the, the real draw of these movies to the rest of the world, uh, and that is the action sequences and the, um, the, the car chase. Okay, um, let's start with the fight scenes. I think that's probably for my, my expertise is, um, I'd say, you know, I think looking at these movies, this was probably one of the first times that someone really went out there and tried to get a really, with the exception of a few other ones, a really realistic, kind of very grounded, um, you know, approach to fighting in a lot of these movies. And I mean, the first one's good. Um, and maybe I'll caveat this by saying that we've got to go in a couple of different directions with this. So talking purely choreography, I mean, um, the guy they brought in was a gentleman by the name of uh, Damon Caro. So he's got quite a, quite a recent resume of stuff. So, I mean, he's done all the Bourne movies. Um, he worked 300. He worked uh, both 300 movies. He worked uh, Batman v Superman, which, other issues aside, the fight in the warehouse is magnificent. <laughs> Um, he's worked on a whole variety of different, uh, different things. I believe his original, um, styling was in kind of the, what are generally called Filipino martial arts or FMA. So that's kind of, uh, Cali, Escrima and, uh, Arnis. And those are, well, generally those are, those tend to be thought of as, as weapon arts and stick and knife arts. Um, they also have a, a pretty substantial amount of kind of hand-to-hand side of things, too, where they use a, la- a lot of hand trapping, a lot of quick strikes. Um, there is kind of a Filipino boxing, which has a couple of different names. The name that I've come to know it by is called Panatukan. And so there is a boxing culture in the Philippines, which is one of the reasons you've seen so many Filipino fighters come up in, in uh recent years but uh really it was kind of taking the fight scenes and moving them into a very realistic point of view so um you know when you talk about the tenets of self-defense and tenets of street fights and things like that and and things that are proven you talk about the length of fights and fights get into uh, two realms the saying goes they're either three seconds or three minutes and i think that's probably one of the things this fight goes these fight scenes do really well is that they go for those timelines and trust me i've watched uh crap ton of uh, YouTube videos on different kinds of fights, and that's the length they tend to go for. So, I mean, you know, there's just real practicality to it. And, I mean, there's definitely some fancy stuff, too. Like, you know, the first fight that he has when he takes out the two guys um, in the embassy, I think there's one Marine guard and one guy with a uh, one guy in a suit, but we'll call him CIA. Uh, you know, he grabs one of them, keeps him in a joint lock, beats up the other guy, and then, of course, takes them both down, strips them of their gun, and goes from there. You know, you're not necessarily going to be able to cover both of those guys at the same time, assuming, you know, you can just keep that guy in that one joint lock. And generally what you try and do as opposed to kind of splitting yourself between two guys, you try and keep all of them on one side of you. Although keeping them on either side of you looks really, really damn cool. Um, and then, you know, from there on out, I mean, it's it's kind of that sort of thing. It's trying to... He's not fighting 50 guys at a time. He's trying. He's at the most fighting one or two. I think in the entire series, the maximum he he tries to fight is about um, 
is about maybe five, and that's not until the last movie. And and we'll talk about the choreography there, but I think they actually make that quite a bit more realistic at the time. So, I mean, you know, the fight choreography itself is really, really solid, I think. Now, kind of getting to the other side, and I think um, this is something that, you know, we've talked about in the difference between directors. I'd say the two important parts of any fight scene are one, the, the fight choreography, what's being done, and then the fight cinematography, how it's shot. And, I mean, there's, there's lots of different techniques. There's lots of different ways to do it. And the way that I think Doug Lyman shot it was that he was, he was very controlled. He was very careful about it. And it was very methodical, and it very much, went, very much went with kind of the character of Bourne and the way the fights were choreographed. And I think it definitely benefits the movie. Um, I remember watching, you know, back in the days when it was on the, the um, Siskel and Ebert reviews, and I remember Roger Ebert actually bringing up that being a difference between the first movie and the second movie was how the shooting style very much mirrored the, uh, very much mirrored what was uh, what was on the screen and, and how it kind of pulled everything together. And I mean, you know, that's kind of one part of it. And it definitely fits into the character of Bourne as well, because he's a very practical Bourne. He's very efficient about his motion. And I remember there being an um, interview with Matt Damon where he said one of the things he did, in, in addition to, you know, studying boxing from a, from a practical, you know, combative point of view, he also studied it from a performance point of view. Because, as I said, you know, he's a very, you know, high economy of motion. He's very direct. You know, he walks, he walks the way a boxer moves the way they walk and, and how they move about that. So, I mean, that kind of rounds out the fight scenes. I mean, you know, definitely they do get into a little bit of fancy stuff near the end between, uh, you know, shooting a gun upside down with your pinky finger, which I swear to God came up on an episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I think sometime in one of the seasons from one of the dumber characters, as well as, uh, you know, doing the jump down the stairwell and landing on the guy. But, I mean, those are those are all quite good. Um, like I said, definitely gets into the, to the realm of fan, uh, fantasy sometimes. Uh, the car scenes, you know, that's another thing they talk about. I mean, I'd say they're they're all very good car chase scenes. Again, I think they kind of they kind of progress as they go on uh, throughout the series because I think a lot of it is the filmmakers with everybody else learning how to both stage and shoot and choreograph everything. Um, I mean, I think those are perfectly good as well. I'd actually say that on some level, the car chase scenes benefit from from Paul Greengrass's slightly more frenetic editing and things like that to to kind of give it a little bit more speed. That said, a lot of it's also the function of where they plan these. You know, car chases, you know, it depends on where you're shooting them. So, I mean, with the Bourne movies, they tend to shoot them in a lot closer quarters. There's not as much run-up space. And in a lot of cases, the vehicles aren't as high performance. Like, I mean, you know he uh, he's using a Mini Cooper in that first movie. That's pretty sure to have the uh, the fenders fall off. But I mean, you know, you compare that to something where you're using a really high performance car. Like um, talk about another what I consider a great spy movie. One of John Frankenheimer's last ones, Ronin, with, uh, ah, with yes. um, Robert De Niro. Like that one's just you know a totally uh, you know breakneck pace, really really fast paced car chase. But again, you know. I think they both work for their respective movies. Very good. Um, I have to say, and we'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to uh, the, the Bourne ultimatum. Uh, I was okay with the car chases. I mean, look, let, let, let's be clear here. I haven't really been into a good car chase since the, since the Matrix Reloaded, but I know I'm not. You know, I'm the outlier here, and I'm okay with that. Um, but I have to say, I completely lost my patience with the car chases. 
with the Born Ultimatum, where the one asset drives him into the divider in New York, and he basically just kind of moves his shoulder, kind of pulls the seatbelt, and proceeds to crash, and then gets out of the car and walks away. And I'm like, no, that motherfucker's dead. Well, just, look, I mean, I mean, any car chase is going to, even more than almost any scene of physical combat, is going to demand a lot of suspension of disbelief because you will not find a commercially available consumer automobile that will do anything that most of these <laughs> movies insist that one of them should be able to. I mean, motherfuckers, because I know that there's, there's somebody out there who's like, uh, you know, the General Lee, the General Lee was physically modded as fuck, you assholes. And that, you, <laughs> think, a... you, re- you really think, and, and, to, and to the chucklehead that might have just said that, the hypothetical one, you mouth-breathing Appalachian fucktard, you really think that was a stock engine and suspension? Hey, by all means, I got some oceanfront property just two blocks from me that I got the deed to. Would love to sell it to you, you fucking twat waffle. Just, and that goes for any that that goes for any movie. The the fucking Italian job, the Fast, the Fast and the Furious. I mean, you're always going to have car chases are one time where it does really just need to come down to, okay, how cool does it look? That, that's okay. about oh, that's about it. Don't get me wrong. I have a high top. Look, I love the last Fast and the Furious movie where they were jumping cars between skyscrapers, and oh, I yeah. bought it. You know, I I bought it. I was with it. I was I'm fine with it. But I but I also think you have to consider the whole presentation. As, as as Andrew was pointing out, they were going for a certain degree of realism, and so on the one, so you can't mm-hmm. you can't say 45 minutes into the movie we're going to abandon realism and have him turn you know turn into uh, an invincible person who can survive a crash like that. It's well, they, this, this is a criticism I have of movie making: is you take me for a bit of a ride and you tell me these are the things, this is how this world works, this is how this character works. And I need to accept that in order to enjoy this movie. And I will. And then halfway through it, you change the rules on me. I feel like I have a right to criticize that. And he went see, from believable to... I had the same problem, if you'll remember, with, with the James Bond movie. I, I want to say it was... Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, it was Casino Royale, where, he, where, where the car takes a tumble. And I'm like, there's nothing really James Bond is walking out of that. <laughs> See, I'm I'm kind of glad that you brought up realism in general because every time um, I, I've ever heard a discussion about about modern day action movies and modern action stars and uh, current movies versus the, the good old all or nothing days, one thing that I keep hearing for some reason for for some reason Muscle and Fitness a while back in an otherwise really good article. It just uh, was a real dog with a bone about this bullshit. Uh, likes to throw Matt Damon out there as being this just example of everything wrong with this action movie. That doesn't look like anybody who kicks somebody's ass. And 
all all fairness being, these are probably the same fuckers that think that every professional wrestler in the world should be six foot six, three hundred and five pounds, and built like fucking Brock Lesnar and Hulk Hogan. Um, just because they, they they keep insisting that because that's what they want to see, well, that must be what everybody wants to see. That that's the only thing anybody will be convinced by. Look, okay, I want you to. And, and and all you assholes, I want you to take this movie's conceit into consideration here. The idea being that the government, the, the, the whole the Treadstone and Blackbriar, the whole point of them is that they train these people who can blend seamlessly into a crowd, who won't stand out, who won't be distinguishable, who won't look like an immediate threat. Okay? Keep that in mind. Now, that's supposed to be the whole to be the whole point. Somebody who can sneak in, get at, get in, get out, and not raise an eyebrow. Now, I want you to think real carefully about the people they originally thought about casting as Jason Bourne. Imagine you have that premise. That's what you're trying to sell people, and you're trying to say that this sleeper agent is fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger? Are you goddamn high? And if so, I will take a cubic fuck ton of whatever you're smoking. Um, that that wouldn't work. Everybody would look at him and be going, get eyes and guns on that guy now. I think he wants to invent new ways to fuck me up. That's the whole goddamn point, you chucklehead. Is the fact just, that a guy, that a guy, going, oh yeah, you blend. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. The, the whole point is the fact that you can have a guy like a Clive Owen, who's a handsome enough guy, and you know looks like he can take care of himself, but he doesn't look like he just walked out of a boxing ring or a UFC cage. Matt Damon can do that. But yeah, he also needs to be able to handle himself at close quarters. And I mean, we live in an era in which, you know, hand-to-hand combat, almost any form of it, has evolved to the point where what's our vision of the true baddest man on the planet? Somebody that we really wouldn't want to mess with because they have the skills to really seriously fuck us up. Okay, yeah, you got your occasional guy like a Brock Lesnar, but let's look at boxing. Heavyweight boxers have not exactly been intimidating figures for a while. They've been basically the two biggest ones in the world have been a couple of jab happy Russians. And I'm sure that right now I wish I had a hundred bucks for every embolism that just popped in Pat Mullen's brain because I could pay my first month's rent on my new place this September. Um, but no, the ones we think of as being the most skilled are Floyd Mayweather, Amir Khan. Okay, maybe not Amir Khan. Manny Pacquiao, Canelo Alvarez, Miguel Cotto, smaller guys who can still fucking punch. MMA has conclusively demonstrated, especially with the with the early no-rules years, that you can take a guy the size of a Hoist Gracie, that you would walk past on the street without a second thought, that you might barely pause to say excuse me to if you bumped him in a crowded bar room, 
and you match him up against a guy who's 250 pounds and built like and built like a warehouse of brick shit houses, and he will all but be able to to if he wants to rip that man's arm off and ride it around the room like a hobby horse. We're pe- we're kind of past that age of. Little man, no fight. Little man, no threat. Only scary man is big man. No, that has been practically disproven. So, no, it makes total sense that you get a guy like Damon, who who ain't exactly sporting 24-inch needle-pumped pythons, brother, but who, if you lay a hand on him, yeah, faster than, faster than you can then you can say, how do you like them apples? He's taken the clip out of your gun and turned it into an anal probe. <laughs> or he's beating the crap out of you with a pen. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. It's, it's a matter of acknowledging that there's an element of skill, that we're past the age of, the age of barbarism. The, the fact that, hell, if you, watch Ga- if you watch Game of Thrones or if you've read it, one of my, and I realize we're getting into the realm of fiction here. One of my favorite parts of the entire, of the entire book. Yeah, I love the stuff with Khal Drogo. But <laughs> the part that really entertained me was little fucking Arya Stark. Um, pretty much outrunning a fleet of Kingsguard and Red Cloaks to make her to make her escape from the castle. That's what's really interesting. And in a setting like this, yeah, you damn bet that I'm more interested in watching a little guy who's got to improvise and he's outnumbered, but because he's had training that the, re- that the rest of these Interpol cops and Paris police can't even begin to fathom, that he's able to make a go of it and escape basically without a scratch. So, the point being, dispense with the bigger is better argument, because it doesn't work in every setting. This is supposed to be a smart movie. This isn't Commando. This isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger going in and bankrupting a small fucking country and every insurance agency, you know, with, you know within a 5,000-mile radius by just blowing up everything that he thinks looks like it might have a pulse. This is about a guy who just wants to escape. He just wants to get away, get away and disappear. He's not a one liner machine. That's not what he, that's not what he's about. If you want that million other movies, you can go watch. On the other hand, I happen to like this one. Yeah. Like I said, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm willing to I'm willing to accept Matt Damon in all the ways you just described up until that one car wreck, and then I went I, I'm done. <laughs> You're not I'll walking out of that, that car. I can't take it. I, I I I will I will grant you one moment of fuck off. <laughs> yeah, someone get Robert Winfrey. The body doesn't work that way. All right. Um, <laughs> let, Let's let's move on to the Born Supremacy. I believe the weakest of the trilogy, and I'll tell you why. And I'm going to link it to the Born Identity and the Born Ultimatum here. I think the strength of the Born Identity and the Born Ultimatum, um, the less so the Born Ultimatum, is 
that you know, when, when we leave Matt Damon in The Born Identity, he has walked away from the CIA. He's won, basically. He's gotten most of his memory back, and he has gone to, uh, he has gone to find his love. Um, and they are you know, living in, at the end of that movie, they're living in what looks to be Greece. Um, and when we pick up the supremacy, he's living in Goa, India. Uh, basically, he isn't bothering anybody. You know, he's, he, he has no mission. He has no reason to run. He's just, uh, as such, he's just, you know, living his life and he's trying to stay out of, uh, of trouble. Um, the thing that drives the born identity and the born ultimatum is he is, he has a mission. He is driven in the first one. He is driven to find out who he is in the third one. Uh, he, there's, there's more going on here with his memory. There's more going on with his backstory that he is driven to find, um, you know, more about how he got into Treadstone and all of that. Uh, the born supremacy, essentially, the only reason why he has to come out of hiding is because they, they thought it was a good idea to, to, to pin, the, uh, uh, pin the robbery on him. And I was like, eh. It's kind of, it, it was like, oh, we need a, we, we need a way of, of bringing him, uh, bring, you know, we need a way of creating a sequel here with a guy who we have no reason to, you know, he has no reason to come out of hiding. Well, we'll invent a reason. You know, and what I what I laugh about, and, and maybe you see it my way, maybe you don't. It's fine. That's that's what discussions for. Is here we have ostensibly a zombie killing machine. Okay, Jason Bourne, mm-hmm. zombie kung fu master killing machine, who can cut through armies of people like a hot knife through butter. Maybe he's let best left alone. I'm just saying. Yeah. Maybe yeah. don't poke that particular badger. Okay. And, um, and, uh, um, uh, uh, may, I, uh, may, I may I interrupt? May I interrupt? Uh, I'm sorry, the damn echo again. Um, there's one thing that I should point out that actually might make that make a little bit more sense to you, Mark. Um, in the book, the born the born supremacy, Maria, or not Maria, Marie wasn't assassinated. She was kidnapped as a means of trying to leverage. Born into coming back to work. Okay, that would make more sense, doesn't it? <laughs> but but to go listen, we have we have this zombie killing machine who isn't bothering anybody. We're gonna go ahead and put him right back in the middle of a huge thing and hope to God <laughs> he doesn't find out that we've done it to him. <laughs> Maybe one of our other assets isn't an incompetent boob and actually kills this fucker, and he won't come after us and burn the entire CIA to the ground. Maybe that won't happen this time. I'm just thinking if I'm in charge, that's a huge gamble. <laughs> you know? Well, Mark, I think I get where you're coming at, but I think also, you know, the the group of guys thinking about this are a lot smaller than just the CIA. Like, I mean, this is basically. Um, now for life, I can't remember Brian Cox's character and the Russian guy basically trying to set up Bourne and pinning stuff back to um, Chris Cooper's character because basically we find out that all these guys are dirty and if the CIA already is kind of an interest in finding and eliminating Bourne, basically what they're doing is just giving them an extra reason to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's a bunch of little guys manipulating a larger organization. 
Andrew, you have two options to do something. In one case, there's a, you know, there's a leopard with a chainsaw. And in the other, <laughs> there's a fishbowl. You, you can go either way. I'm probably not choosing the leopard with a chainsaw. I'm just saying. I'm not even sure how to respond to that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Dorothy, I'm I the mean, one who makes the comments that engender that response. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I don't understand the logic of what they were doing. You know, you, he, he's a patsy in a lot of ways. I understand and they that. They had are, are there not better patsies in the world? I mean, I understand without it, we don't have a movie, and so it's sort of a moot point, and I am going to move on because of that reason. But... Please hear me when I say, and this is what I mean by you have a goal, you know, you, 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 there are many other passes they could have gone with who aren't going to come back and burn the entire CIA to the ground or capable of it. Maybe go with them. But no. Let's but I mean, I think it's that. Go ahead. It's kind of the multiple choice chart where it's like, okay, you know, Patsy, somebody the CIA doesn't like, someone who's got the ability to try and pull off the hit that we need to have happen happen, you know, with the same level of discretion that we can frame at the same time. There's the killing, you're making the, there's a killing two birds with one stone argument, which is, which is fine. I just, I, I look at what they have born doing. I look at what he accomplished in, and what he will then go on to accomplish in, in uh, the ultimate born ultimatum and then, and uh, Jason Bourne. And I just think to myself, Maybe leave the leopard with a chainsaw alone. Just he's there. He isn't bothering anybody. Let it be. Let it be. But then we don't have a movie. So, <laughs> um, so back to the born leopard with a chainsaw. Um, <laughs> to do an episode of how it should have ended. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So he's off living in Goa, India. Uh, Goa, India, with uh, the gal who took him for a ride in the first movie. And um, again leaving out a bunch of details that we kind of just talked about it. There's a, there's some sort of, um, Andrew, you want to go ahead and do this for me? You want to just sum up, sum up the movie for me? Well, uh, Dr. McCoy gets, uh, hired by a bunch of Russians and then shoots Marie and then, and, uh, Jason Bourne comes off and then, uh, he, uh, and, oh, I'm terrible at this. You're way better at this than I am, Mark. <laughs> I thought it was well I... the Dr. McCoy joke and then it went off the rails. You know what? I, I I more or less know what happens once you know once the setup takes place, but if the setup was a little, it was a little hard for me to follow in this. That's why I was saying like you want to you want to jump in with the details. But if basically there's a there's a there's a theft, there's a setup. This is all made to look like uh, uh, Jason Bond a bad bad thing. Uh, so the CIA goes after him again. Dun dun dun. Oh my God, it's Jason Bond, and we're off and running. Q. Several scenes of people banging at computers like monkeys on meth, trying to find this man using every camera in the world. Uh, several fight scenes, a car chase. Poor Marie gets shot in the noggin. Um, and then, you know, and then at the end, uh, oh gosh, oh, th- this is the one where everyone they tell him his real name is uh, is David Webb, um, which sets up the next movie. Uh, he go and um, you know after he done killed the uh, Brian Cox character, uh, he goes back into hiding again. Well, not really, because uh, what what we'll find out is in the next movie after he figures out that he's David Webb and there's more to there's more to his uh, origin than meets the eye. 
Um, you know, he goes off looking for more answers in the third movie. But sticking with the Bourne supremacy, but just one more moment. Um, yeah, I felt like this was the weakest of the trilogy. I've already said my, my reasons for even there even being a, a second movie were, were a bit ridiculous, in my opinion. Um, go ahead and give me your opinion of the, of the second movie, Andrew. I, I, um, it certainly does set the template for what the next three, the next, nah, not, not counting the Bourne Legacy, uh, the next three movies are going to be because they are literally the same movie at this point. So, so, Supremacy, mm-hmm. Ultimatum, and Jason Bourne, literally the same movie, with, with, almost to, you know, to, you know, the cute, you know, action sequence. The, 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 the people banging on computers, action, people banging on computers, action, car chase, death, victory. You know, it, they don't they don't change much. Um, I think uh, one reviewer said Jason Bourne is a lousy cover song. But uh, your impressions of the Bourne supremacy? Do you agree that it's the, with me that it's the weakest of the of the trilogy, or do you find a jewel in there worth uh, worth discussing? I'd probably agree with, you, agree with you that the weakest of the trilogy, but also I'd probably say that. That doesn't necessarily make it a bad movie either. Like I mean, I'd still say this trilogy on the whole for me doesn't doesn't drop off much. And actually, now that you're starting to make me think more about the storyline, you can almost make the argument that the way they shot and set up the two movies basically bore um, identity or sorry, supremacy and ultimatum are almost one movie split at one part because basically one picks up right after the other. So, and I mean. I agree at this point they become a little bit, you know, a little bit formulaic and they have, uh, you know, kind of the same story points. They also introduce the, uh, you know, my favorite gag in the movie, which is the, well, why don't you come in and talk about this? Well, I'm actually standing in your office right now, so we'd be having this conversation <laughs> face-to-face, or which, which is great. The old I mean, Boston in the ambulance. <laughs> like I told you, we're going straight to hell, right? Oh, my God! <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs> Sorry, just resurrecting oh, my, my early two thousand wrestling fan credits. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I you know I enjoyed the movie. I thought it um, you know it moved well. I was kind of invested on you know going from going from this mystery around what happened, why they came after him, to also kind of segueing into this um, segueing into this. Uh, you know, this person back to his personal journey of trying to figure out what happened, trying to find out, and that kind of turning into a little bit of a redemption arc to him about you know remembering what happened with Nesky and the politician and his wife, and then going to find their daughter to you know to apologize to her. And now that I think about that scene more, it actually really kind of thematically ties in because at the same time, it's it's born refining his humanity, but it's also it goes with his personal quest to find out what happened to Marie to also going circling around to this young woman who had also suffered loss in being able to tell her the truth of what, about what happened. So I think from an emotional point of view, it definitely works. Um, one other aspect of these movies that I think kind of gets, you know, talked about as a bit of a gag that uh, I actually really like is the whole, you know, people pounding their heads against, uh, against screens and, and doing that sort of cat, cat and mouse thing. And I mean, those are kind of neat frenetic scenes of people typing really, really fast. But on the flip side, I like this from the cat and mouse point of view, on the fact that you kind of get, you get to see what the other side is making the assumptions about, which in a lot of these movies you don't necessarily get to see. You get to see, you know, Tom Cruise make a supposition. It's like, okay, we're going to go in through the ventilation systems. Then they go in through the ventilation systems, and that's it. 
And then with the Bourne movies, you get them seeing, you know, and going back to the first movie, you have them trying to make educated guesses based on on what he's done. And I think that's, on some level, that's reflective on, you know, it rings true to, to military history. It rings true to a lot of the history of, uh, of espionage, where in a lot of cases, it's an educated guessing game of being able to say, we understand what this person does as a pattern. This is what they're doing right now. This is what the supposition is I'm kind of making about it, which I think is kind of one of the more fun fun aspects of, of these movies. I will agree with you. I mean, as much as um, I have Robert Winfrey echoing in my ear, you know, the stuff in the computer rooms never works that way. I enjoy the mystery of it. You know, they are trying to use the, the instruments that they have, the tools that they have to locate somebody, try to predict their pattern, try to figure out where they are. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't just enjoy my superhero movies. I enjoy a good mystery. Uh, I, I enjoy a good detective story. And there's a bit of detective work going on in those scenes. You know, um, the, underneath the frenetic banging away at the keyboard, there is this idea of where is this, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? What are we going to, you know, how are we going to go find them? And using, um, it's also one of the reasons I enjoy good, good, solid science fiction, is using your knowledge base to solve complex problems. Um, I have and to say, if, if I was, someone puts a gun to my head and says, name one thing about the Bourne trilogy that you do like, it's that element of it. And my favorite parts of Jason Bourne, uh, the new one, were those things for that reason. Go ahead, Andrew. So I was going to say, I think one of the other interesting aspects that you see is how often people overthink these problems. I think, you know, there's this, um, there's this scene in the, in the first movie where they're trying, to get, they're trying to get a receipt from a hotel that Jason had stayed in, and he's going to send Marie in. And they go through this big, what hints at a big elaborate plot where it's like, here's all the exits, I have to call you on this number, and then we'll do this, that, and the other thing. And he's getting ready to call, and you have this moment of... Uh, of trepidation because she's not picking up. Two seconds later, she's at the phone booth where he's standing, and she's got the paper, and it's like, what'd you do? The guy was smiling at me, so I went up and asked him for it. Oh, yeah? <laughs> uh, that's one way of doing it. But it's kind of, the, I mean, the same thing happens in both sides, because on some cases, you've got a double mystery here. You've got the mystery of, of the CIA trying to figure out what Bourne's doing, and then you've got Bourne going through his own mystery, trying to figure out where the next guy is. So it's really kind of Dueling mysteries in some ways. There's always some nameless, faceless zombie villain uh, that's chasing Bourne, the asset. Um, Mm. And this one, I don't even remember as being particularly memorable. Maybe you can fill in the blanks for me. But whether it's this one or uh, or even the next one in the Bourne Ultimatum, because I know they do the same thing in Bourne, although this one they actually have a backstory. Um, I just feel like, yes, your big villain is the CIA person who's trying to set him up or find him or kill him or something. Um, and then there's sort of the emperor's hand that they send after him. But I also feel like they, they, with, the, with these with supremacy and ultimatum, they could have done a better job of not making it, as I keep telling you, know, a zombie killer um, and, and more of a fleshed out character, you know, a character with some sort of personality and not just a, not just a body holding a gun chasing after him. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe there's something more there that I just didn't pick up on. What, what are your thoughts there on the assets? Well, you know what? I, they're, they kind of mirror yours, but generally my opinion of the story is that 
this is a hot mess in part because you have some good ideas that were that were unfortunately nixed that just make me go well well like like I alluded to at the top of the segment the whole idea of well in the original novel they just kidnapped Marie and they used her to leverage Born into working for for them again that was a good idea why the hell didn't you just film that <laughs> even in spite of that um there was a scrap story element uh, another one that Tony Gilroy came up with and. Uh, the poor man, he tried to get this across in two straight movies, and it didn't work in either of them. He said, well, why don't we make this movie a story in which Bourne takes on kind of a lone, disgraced samurai's journey of atonement? Um, I mean, after all, you kind of set that up with his horror at his own past in the first movie. Why not do that in this one? That would be good. Driv- oh, that's right, character-driven. Because this was also the movie where Matt Damon started getting a lot more creative input into the story. This is why I don't necessarily like it when this happens with actors. To give you a good example, uh, mind you, I couldn't find any specifics as to what the original ending of the movie was. But... Um, about two weeks before the Born Supremacy was set to hit theaters, Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon sit down and come up with an entirely new ending. They managed to somehow talk Universal into basically let them rearrange the stars so that they can shoot this. Mind you, it two hundred thousand more dollars onto the budget, and it involved pulling Damon from shooting Ocean's Twelve for a few weeks. But it also somehow tested ten points higher with audiences. I don't know why we didn't get a more coherent story because it seems like we should have. It seems like there was every opportunity to do more than just doing spy versus spy <laughs> with, with, with Matt Damon and, and some asset with no established personality that I give zero fucks about. Um, it's, well, it's, it's like Andrew called, him, Andrew called him Dr. McCoy just because, you know, by virtue of he's played by Carl Urban. Um, I apologize. That should have been dread. Oh no 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 yeah. no! Actually, the, actually, the, the the only the only thing that kind of baked my ZD about that was the fact that earlier this week, um, I, I, I'm sorry, random Sean doing shit when he's not researching podcasts over here. Um, I sat down and for whatever reason, I decided that I wanted to go back and watch both episodes of Encounter at Farpoint, the Star Trek: The Next Generation pilot. <laughs> um, and it gets to a part where there's a brief little otherwise entirely meaningless vignette where there, where Picard is inquiring about the whereabouts of data on the ship. And he says, he's escorting an admiral. He's escorting an admiral who had a particular interest in our medical bay. And it cuts away. And there's this elderly fellow who's walking with, who's walking with data. 
and it takes several lines and references. Like he, he's grumbling about the Vulcans and having his atoms scattered across space and then reassembled. For me to go, wait just a cotton fucking minute. Are you here to Forrest Kelly? <laughs> I just, I just, I, I had a little, I had a brief little geek out moment at that because it had been years. I was a kid when I watched that, and I didn't put two and two together. And watching that again, I just went, ah, fan service. Um. <clears throat> anyway, I'm back. Um. No. Uh. It's it's not a very interesting, a very interesting story at all. It. It takes Damon from being an actual character and having some conflict in the first movie to, look, Mopey is not a character trait. Okay. <laughs> oh, tell grieving, that to the people at Warner Brothers, you. Grieving in and of itself is not a character trait. Martha. Being pissed is not a character trait. That's ba- and yet basically that's all he is. There is there is no real conflict. The, the, he has no doubts about what he's no doubts about what he's doing like he did in the first one when he was confronted again and again with the gradually reassembling memories of some of the bad bad things that he's at that he's had to do to what amount to complete strangers. No, in this one, it's just, okay, you killed Lola. Now I'm coming for you. That's about what it comes down to. Uh, that, that's about it. The, the, whole, the whole lone samurai story where he's maybe trying to do some, to do some good. Okay. You know what? I'm wearing the N7, so I'm going to do my mass affecting again. Where he's kind of a Thane Creos type, where where he where he's still haunted by that, but he's trying to do something to redeem himself a little bit and maybe put a few things right in the world, in penance for all the things that he did wrong. That's a good story. Combine that with the fact that they've kidnapped Marie, and there you go, you've got it. And just for funsies. Let's also get rid of the douche nozzle who thought that the Blair Witch Project was the paragon of modern cinematography. <laughs> there you go. You don't. Okay, maybe you don't bring Doug Lyman back. God knows, I kind of understand. But there you go. You have a better movie. Do that. Make that movie. But instead, like I said, this is why I compared it to Quantum of Solace. Because, you know, if you gobble drama mean like they're M&Ms, and you don't really care about all that personal conflict stuff in the first one, and you want to just see badass man with his badass pimp hand and just go around and kill all, and kill all of the things, and you know you you want lines lines like you know, we'd be having this conversation face to face, and then you hear that that damn Moby sting, 
Um, there you go. Then this is your movie. On the other hand, all I can say about it is I liked it. I thought it was entertaining. I, I, I thought Brian Cox was really, really good. But I felt like Matt Damon kind of wasted himself on thinking that he knew better than the It's In a way, it's almost like he was saying, huh, I know this story better than that Robert Ludlum guy. Fuck <laughs> you! Okay, yeah, maybe, yeah, because maybe Robert Ludlum didn't have his name and his legacy kind of dry-humped repeatedly repeatedly by a video game developer for decades after his death. But Robert Ludlum was a damn fine writer. I felt like he certainly deserved better than deserved better than this. Just make the original story. So hard you didn't know better. But no, no, no. Okay, I know it's two weeks out, guys, but we got this great idea for an ending. Okay, so it's me and the ass and the asset, and then the asset, he looks at me, and he says, and he says, he's trying to save Martha. And then I say, why you say that name? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. So moving <laughs> right along. Um, we, need to, we need to, in the interest of time, get to the, uh, the Bourne Ultimate. Where um, again, just getting right to the right to the meat, right in right in the meat and potatoes of this whole thing. Um, they ain't just Treadstone. There's Briar Pass. There's Guggenfrank. There's Hassenfass. There's all these things. These CIA programs make killers, killers, and oh no, Pamela go. Lundy, don't you dare throw me in that Briar Patch. <laughs> they make we kill people to make sure we Sandler? have freedom to try to. We've killed people to try to make sure we have the freedom to bring down Rotten Tomatoes. That's very important in this world. (laughs) (laughs) Glad, everybody. And Um, that is topical humor, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Uh, No, he, uh, so there wasn't just Treadstone. There was also Briar Patch. We have, uh, we haven't talked about Julia Stiles. And I, and I said this to Winfrey last night. I said, you know, I didn't know she was in these movies. In fact, I didn't know she had been in anything since Save the Last Dance. So I kept waiting for her to start dancing around uh, Matt Damon in anything that she does. Um, she also has to be accompanied by a young black man. Um, that's just that's just the rules. <laughs> but uh, so Julia Stiles is in these things. She was the logistics person when he was the Redstone, and uh, she's managed to to despite the fact that he is a broken piece of equipment, no longer working. Yeah, yeah, she still is. And in this one, uh, she ends up now. Now, Andrew, what what is the detail that connects her to uh, Jason Bourne besides the fact they both work for the same institution? There's something going on, and I and I missed it. It's addressed later on in the movie where she stares at him with those dead blank eyes, and. <laughs> And it, and, it, and it ultimately leads to her leaving the CIA and later on, and then helping him. And what is the what is the personal connection she has to him? 
she was she was his direct handler in Paris. So I mean, she she interacted with him. She gave him the missions. She was also responsible for for monitoring his and other other agents' health that came through Paris as well. So I mean, she interacted with him quite a bit. She was she was really what you'd call the handler. And then Conklin was kind of he was the project director or something like that. They kind of oversaw the whole thing. So I mean, there wasn't she had a more connection. Did they have a relationship with David Webb? They, well, I mean, I think they infer that there's some kind of relationship there. I don't think they ever, they never come out and say it straight either. Okay. I thought I missed something because there's, there's a, because I think he, he asked her like what, something along the lines of why, why did you make this decision, not that decision? And she says, you really don't remember, do you? And I'm like, yeah, and I think that's about as far as the inference goes. Okay. Okay, good. I, I didn't fall asleep during that piece of detail. Um, in any case, so she's uh, – he ends up taking her at one point hostage and then not so much a hostage anymore, and she ends up helping him. Uh, and this is all about exposing Briar Patch, um, which is the next step in Treadstone, which is yet more CIA assassins killing people to preserve our freedoms. That's the crux of the movie. Um, and they don't want – uh, obviously they don't want this exposed because this goes right against uh, the Constitution. This goes right against what we are supposed to be doing as a free country and leader of the free world. And it's not a nice thing and bad, you know, and blah, blah, yakety, schmackety. Um, and so this all goes... And so you have the crisis of conscience thing played at large with this movie. Instead of it being sort of a personal, someone wrestling with their conscience, and I don't think I should be a killer anymore... You have the, what is the CIA's mission in life? Is it to be this terrible institution or, you know, or should it be something else? And you have uh, uh, Landry, I believe her name is, who, uh, who has the, the one, the, the Joan Allen character, uh, who has the one philosophy of we should be something better than this. And then I believe you have, uh, what is it, uh, David Strayham, who uh, who represents the other side of this thing, is a terrible world, and we have to do terrible things. And you know, it's the old uh, it's the it's the line from from uh, Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Shield sees the world as it is, not as you want it to be, and therefore we're going to put a laser in space and kill lots of people. Got it, Captain America? Oh, that sounds terrible. Well, fuck you, Captain America. Anyway, um, that's the Winter Soldier in a nutshell. So. The Bourne Ultimatum. Um, I, I, like I said, not as much fun for me as the Bourne Identity, uh, but at least he had a mission in this one. At least I could understand his point of view. You know, after everything they did to him in the Bourne Supremacy, I can understand why he'd be a wee bit pissed with the CIA. Um, but then you get into this whole thing of they were watching him uh, for, they had been watching him for a while and, um, Oh gosh, I may be confusing some of this with the new movie, but that basically he, his dad was dead. His dad had been killed by, and so he volunteered for this. I think this and, is the new movie. Okay, so where am I? What is the detail that they find out about his backstory in this one, Andrew? They, they, well, they, basically, in, they basically revealed that he was an Iowa farm boy. Yeah, I, I and, I, and I and I and I think this is where we learned that his name was David Webb. But she yeah, said so much the, the one supremacy. 
Yeah. And then they drop that scene in the middle of this one, which I actually thought was kind of a fun little piece of, of film craft and, you know, kind of playing around with context where at the end of the last movie, it was just a bit of a gag. And now you find out that she's actually telling him the, his real name and giving him the address to the place where he needs to go at the same time, which I thought was a bit, bit of kind of film fun. Hmm. Uh, so I'll just open this up to discussion. Like I said, I don't have a whole lot to add other than I thought the plot to this one was stronger. I thought his reasons for going after the CIA were very strong here. Um, I thought, you know, adding a little bit more mystery and you know, his search for well, why did I volunteer? How did I get into this program? Okay, I know I understand who I am now, but but why? Why would I do? Why would I do such a thing? So that gets talked about a little bit, and they show you some scenes of him being, you know, the behavior modification stuff. Um, that's all fine and dandy. I don't have a whole lot to add because, like I said, it's the, it's the same beats as the, as the movie, only done better. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna pitch to you, Andrew. And this is an opportunity also because we're getting on the end of the show here. If you've got notes, if you've got some um, opinions, some ideas left unsaid, now's the time uh, to, to put those out there in the world. So go ahead, Andrew. Thanks, Mark. Um, I think the, the one other thing that kind of drives this movie in a lot of ways is um, the fact that the major difference between Briarpatch and Treadstone is that Treadstone was basically – from everything they ever said, it was basically going out and, and killing other people from other places and stuff like that. And the big thing that came up, which was kind of a foreshadowing, or maybe it was parallel to the whole drone conversation, was um, the fact that Briar Patch is actually targeting American citizens. Hmm. And that was kind of a big driver to say that, you know, this is inherently wrong and, and this is where it is and, and things like that. I mean, I am having trouble trying to remember where... Where, um, oh yes, I remember, this all started with a news leak. So there was a news reporter who had found out about um, some source, the the station chief that had recruited Bourne initially came out to a news reporter um, and started telling him about Blackbriar, started telling him about um, Jason Bourne. That's how everything got looped back in with, with Sir Thurman's character and then also um, Pamela Andy coming in because she had been the last one to try and track him down as well. Um, I mean, overall, I really enjoyed the movie. Personally, for me, I mean, this is the this is kind of the top of them. I think it has, you know, a good plot. It's again having that mission works um, in favor of it. I think, you know, again having Jason, you know, have that personal mission in parallel with his practical one to find out more about who he was, and you know, the scenes at the end with Albert Finney, who is just you know absolutely fantastic, were great. Um, uh, you know that works well. I think the, the you know the scene at the end with with uh, him kind of disappearing off to uh, to come back in another ten years to do another movie was was quite good. And uh, there's a lot good to say about this one. Like I said, it's my personal favorite. Um, kind of going on to general notes, and it'll tie in a little bit to this movie. Talking about the director switch, um, to be very honest, I'm I'm actually a fan of Paul Greengrass. I lo- like a lot of his stuff. I like a lot of his um, a lot of the way he shoots. Um, I saw one of his early movies, um, Bloody Sunday, which is about the the incident in Ireland that inspired the the U2 song, and that's quite a good movie. And you know, it works in certain cases. In a lot of cases, for Bourne, it doesn't because, again, it goes back to talking about how the character moves, the efficiency of motion, and getting into shaky cam doesn't help a whole lot. Um, and kind of translating that over to the – I think it helps with chase scenes. I don't think it helps, helps as much with the fight scenes. Talking about that, um, talking about pure choreography, I'll actually say that 
the in the ultimatum and and supremacy probably have among my favorite fight scenes and in, in all of movies and I think that goes a lot to uh the change in fight choreographer choreographer for these two movies they brought on a gentleman named uh, Jeff Amata and uh another longtime martial artist but with a very interesting lineage and and uh one that uh that I very much admire he was actually um along with being an established martial artist he was also very good friends with Brandon Lee and had done um, actually done a lot of the fight choreography for the Crow movie. Um, now, that said, he also trained with Brandon quite a bit, and specifically he trained with Brandon under a gentleman named uh, Guru Dan Inosanto. Guru Dan, um, he's about 80 years old now, but if you ever get a chance, if you have any interest in the martial arts, I highly recommend you either go train with him, either in his own academy, or you see if you can find a seminar with him, because... He's an amazing martial artist. He's he's a wonderful teacher, amazing part of knowledge, but or amazing, you know, kind of provider of martial knowledge, a Filipino uh, martial art art uh, expert in in many different Filipino martial arts. But he's also was also the um the only man that Bruce Lee ever totally could train Ji Kundo, which was his own art. So I mean, in a lot of cases this kind of brings this system, you know, I mean, it's three steps removed from Bruce Lee, and uh, the fight choreography shows it. I mean, again, you get into a mixing of things, you get into improvising, you get into a lot of things technically that you find, and, you know, in terms of destructions, um, blocking, moving, the way it, the way the fight scenes flow are fantastic. That said, the way they're shot doesn't help at all, because, again, we're getting into shaky cam, and trying to com- combine shaky cam with a lot of really intricate fight scenes doesn't help a lot. I'll say they're better in the ultimatum, but that's because they've slowed the camera around a little bit. Um, and, I mean, I'd say the best fight scene in this entire entire series is probably the one that uh, that Bourne has with, uh, I believe the character's name was Dash in, in Tangier, where, you know, the, the aforementioned book comes out, and uh, at one point, I think, uh, Dash has a, he grabs a razor, straight razor, actually, and and uh, Borna actually fights him off using a, a towel. And uh, the technique that he actually uses, um, I can find it on YouTube, but you can look it up, is uh, you can actually find Dan Onosanto training that sort of thing and showing that sort of thing as it comes from a lot of the Filipino martial arts where a lot of Filipino men would have, um, you know, carried like a very tightly wound scarf that you could have done that sort of stuff in. But again, um, like I said, it's maybe not the best combination of fight choreography and, and fight cinematography, but... You know, I'll still say these are some of my favorite fight scenes in the uh, in movies in general. All right, very good, Andrew. I really appreciate your your take on these movies, Sean. Again, interest of time being the thing. Why don't you wrap us up here with uh, the Born Ultimatum? I, you know what? It's it's a good movie. It's once more just to kind of give a little last bit of trivia. Um, Tony Gilroy once more tried to direct it toward a story of repentance and atonement, and but oh, Matt Damon didn't like it. Which you know what, Damon, go make your own born movie with blackjack and hookers. Act, forget the movie. But of course, so that got absolutely shit canned. And again, as of 2009, he said that. He hadn't watched the completed film because he felt that that it omitted the focus that he targeted. Um, Tom Stoppard apparently also did a draft of the script, but he too also said, I don't think there 
think there's a word of mine in their film. Uh, it's, it's an extremely referential movie in terms of callbacks or parallel structure or parallel, or parallel lines to the first movie. If you go look at the Wikipedia page, there's a list of no less than a dozen moments where they wink at something from either uh, the Bourne identity or the Bourne supremacy, uh, right down to actually there being at one point a cleverly placed still of Richard Chamberlain from the old-timey times TV movie version of the Bourne identity. So if you have a sharp set of eyes, go ahead and pick that out. Um, but you know what? Profitability pig hostage won out. And <laughs> on a $110 million budget, this motherfucker made $442.8 million. Uh, 85% score on Metacritic, 93% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So I can't argue with it, but, you know, much like my experience with Highlander, I just feel like I wasn't watching the same movie as everybody else. <laughs> there was no well, reference I... to a rape in there. I swear, there was not in my DVD version a <laughs> reference to anybody getting raped. I swear. Oh. I fucking down on the head of my not-yet-deceased cute little Cocker Spaniel dog, Toby. There was no reference to anybody getting raped. Yes, yeah, Sean. Yes, indeed. Fuck so off. get ready for. Get get the ready for. The heavyweight division sucks. There. How do you like that, huh, Mr. Mandated Reporter, Mr. Frankly, I'm mortified. Put your put your pants me. Put 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 it back in your pants. Easy, ugly. Um, Fuck clutch. So get ready. Get ready for the Jason Bourne uh, cinematic universe, everybody, because that's coming. That's not a joke, by the way. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> we, are, we are living in the world of, holy fuck, we have to create cinematic universes out of all the things. And, and so since Jason Bourne, they haven't completely sucked the life out of that franchise yet. Andrew, how many more of these movies do you want to see? 20, 100? How, how, what, would, what would satisfy you, man? What what do you what needs to happen for, the, for we to put this goddamn thing to bed? I'm pretty happy with these three. I mean, I saw I've seen most of uh, the Born Legacy with with Jeremy Renner and Sean. I gotta say earlier you pronounced it Jeremy Henner, so I don't know if you're going Brazilian on us or something like that. But uh, I mean, it was I, it was know, a good I, effort. I, I've heard it both ways. I always hear Renner, but anyway, um, I'm pretty much good with this. I'll probably watch Jason Bourne at some point, but I mean, you know, I was pretty happy with this trilogy, and unless you can come back and, and really expand the story, then it kind of gets superfluous. No, sir. I, I work for the studios, and I say you need at least 20 more of these movies, and then then you'll be satisfied. 20 more. And we're gonna Mark, you're just feeding ideas to an unpaid intern. Come on, man. <laughs> And there's going to be Jason Bourne, and there's going to be a Mrs. Bourne, and there's going to be the, the son of Bourne, and then the dog of Bourne, and then Jason Bourne meets Deadpool. I, the, the, and doing then, the whole and then, Jason Bourne farming shit potatoes on Mars. And, and, then there was, and then there was Gimli, son of Bourne. <laughs> it, it's all coming, ladies and, and gentlemen. I don't make this I born the next born a, and And then what we're going to do is we're going to remake the movie, and we're going to re- sub out Matt Damon, and we're going to cast Will Smith. And it's going to be called I Was Born a Poor Black Child. 
<laughs> yeah, that's that, that, that. They're going to put Jason Bourne in the next Ghostbusters movie because we don't want to relive that horror again. You know, like, look, now we've got men and women uh, in this thing. Fantastic. Yeah. You know what? My, my Put a camera my on Michelle McCarthy's head. No, 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 guys, is, got it. My is, is, then... my, my honest opinion is I reject your realities and I substitute my own. Because in my reality, there were eight seasons of Scrubs. There were seven seasons of Dexter. There were four Star Wars movies three Indiana Jones movies, and only three Bourne movies. Also, there are cookies, the water fountains all dispense 12-year-old single malt scotch, and I can fly. <laughs> Speaking of flying, Jason Bourne will be in the new Justice League movie. Right after he, right after uh, Bruce Wayne tells Aquaman, hey, hey, you could talk to fish. What? Fucking Damn funny. your eyes. Did the Hellraiser podcast teach you nothing? They tap <laughs> the phones. <laughs> He's kidding. He's kidding. Especially all you motherfuckers that decided that Aquaman is apparently an alcoholic. Go ahead, Andrew. I know you're trying to bust the silliness. I was going to say, I just want the scene where, where, you know, Ben Affleck's fighting uh, Matt Damon, and then suddenly he realizes that he can't fight him because his name is Jason. (laughs) Why you say that name? I actually genuinely don't mind that bit in Batman versus Superman. But the meme is getting to the point where you can just insert anything into it. Yeah, I, I've, I've defended that hands down, but even I like to make you know giggles out of it every once in a while. No, here's the problem: you're gonna have Batman fighting Jason Bourne, and suddenly they're going to stop, and one of them's gonna say, "How do you like that apple?" Hey, wait a minute. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's legitimately right, only one of those movies I'm looking forward to right now. <laughs> All right, wait, wait, we're done here. I'm time to put Jason Bourne to bed next to my two-year-old. Um, we are uh, speaking of done. We are done with Long Road to Ruin for the foreseeable future. We'll be back in October, right in time for Halloween, with a two-part episode. Uh, two parts. Uh, sorry, two parts uh, dealing with the Hannibal Lecter series. Four movies, two parts. Robert Winfrey will be joining us. That's uh, he, he, he did an entire like two hour podcast by himself just on Hannibal Lecter. So if I don't let him on this one, he may serve me up with uh, a nice Chianti and some fava beans. That's from the movie. yo. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're going to be doing that one about October 27th, right in time for Halloween as we do. That's our Halloween feature here on the long road to ruin. Um, and so, the month is we start doing some joint podcasts Thursday in September. We'll be watching comic book, then the Watchmen movie. Uh, two hours, a handful of guests, the whole Rattle Legend Broadcasting family, hither and thither. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the comic book, we'll look at the movie, we'll compare and contrast, and then we'll take a drink, because that's what you need when you deal with Alan Moore. Um, on uh, September 15th, we'll look at The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and I will try not to hang myself, because God, that movie was terrible. Um, September 22nd, uh, we'll be looking at V for Vendetta, and then because <laughs> Jesse Starcher thinks I hate him, on September 29th, uh, right in time for October, we'll be looking at uh, Alan Moore's From Hell both, again, the comic book and the movie. A fun time will be had by nobody. So, 
Um, maybe Sean will join us for that. Maybe he won't. Sean is an enigma wrapped in a mystery, everybody. We, we never know what he's going to do. You never know where Sean's going, going to turn up. But uh, that being said, I want to thank Andrew Graham for joining us. Uh, he always has an extended invitation. Anytime he decides that something tickles his fancy uh, to come on this show and join us. So we certainly appreciate him and his insight and uh, his knowledge of, uh, of the fight game. Uh, Andrew, if you want to go ahead and plug any gyms you're, you're uh, working at, at or any projects you're working on, or if you'd uh, like to pitch a Jason Bourne versus movie, go ahead. <laughs> uh, you know what? I would be totally down for, uh, for Jason Bourne being uh, put into any of the Raid movies because those are just beyond awesome. Uh, yes. That said, uh, <laughs> Sean, Mark, uh, I want to thank you guys very much for having me on again. I had a complete oh. blast both prepping for this and then uh, being on the show my, uh, being on the show itself. Um, I train at Havoc, uh, sorry, at Steam Martial Arts and Havoc JKD here in Calgary. Uh, you can either find us on Facebook or at uh, CalgaryJKD.com. That is under uh, the absolutely awesome uh, Sifu J. Cooper. Uh, we're also part of the Jeet Kune Do Athletic Association. Um, that is under uh, the absolutely incredible um, uh, Sifu Harinder Singh Sabarwal. Uh, you can find uh, a gym in your area or a local affiliate under at jkdathletics.com. Uh, and uh, I believe you can find them on uh, find us on Facebook there as well. Um, again, thank you very much, guys. Apparently, partway through this podcast, if I'm going to plug something directly related to the network, I have now signed up with Robert to go review uh, Dunkirk next summer. Woo! With okay. that said, thank you very much again. And uh, on Sean's suggestion, I'm going to go find myself a, a Drama Bowmore right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure, him being from Calgary, but knowing he's a Sharks fan, I'm not sure if I should shout out Go Flames or Go Sharks. Um, go Sharks. I, I had a feeling. I had a feeling because, I mean, <laughs> really, the, the Flames are the Flames. Um, yeah, this coming from the Coyotes fan. Um, but As long as they're not okay. the Leafs, we're fine. Uh, oh, God, no. I, I have a running agreement with, an, with a very old family friend from Toronto that I'll lay off the planes, but it doesn't mean I have to cheer for them either. Besides, <laughs> so it's CFL season. I have to hate either the Hamilton Tiger Cats or the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. <laughs> I should just start watching the CFL instead of the NFL. <laughs> Great Cup's never a bad game. Just saying. All right. Um, so, Mark, is it my turn for plugs? Yes, yeah, certainly is, Ollie. <laughs> okay, Syphil. Um Anyway, uh, thank you, everybody who listens every single week, whether you download, whether you listen live. It's always a pleasure to have a live audience. We love your feedback. Your feedback is the reason we've made a number of our friends and a number of our current podcasters, um, such as Benjamin Cologne, Jason Teasley, Andrew Graham, uh, Jesse Starter, uh, just people who were kind of fans of our fans of ours first. So just so you know, we always support you by tracking down the Robertson Broadcasting Network on Facebook. Uh, tweet at us on tweet at us on Twitter. Uh, let us know what you think. Show ideas. If you disagree with something we said. Hey, we're always open to love, hate, and respectful disagreements. To borrow a to borrow a little bit from uh, the lovely Miss Lisa Foyles. 
Um, that being said, uh, as usual, if you want to find me, uh, small change actually. Um, uh, instead of Facebook, you can now harass me on Twitter. That's right. I am back among the little birds at Comer Codex. C-O-M-E-R-C-O-D-E-X. Um, I'm on there a little more often every day, but I've always got the app open on my tablet so I can respond to tweets as I get as I get them. Feel free to shout them out if you want to talk. Gaming, music, movies, coyotes, hockey, uh, coffee, anything else you want to. Um, I'm always open to stop and say hey to fans for just a moment. Um, in the meantime, a uh, very special week because a couple of announcements. First off, I may not be on some of the shows in September because I am going to be once more locating, relocating to a whole new fortress of Shaunitude. Uh, I've been living in a different part of Phoenix for the last couple of months, uh, but I'm going to be returning to the lovely East Valley in Chandler, uh, where I'm once more going to be right around the corner from my good friends um, uh, Brandon, uh, Brandon Jones at Seal Web Marketing, um, Jay Pagliero, you can hear him uh, uh, every Thursday on MMA on MMA Fight Radio on 1080 AM Sports here in Phoenix, or you can also stream the show on the show online. Um, of course, my wonderful my wonderful friend Scarlett is going to be living right around the corner from me again. Uh, just all in all, it's a good situation. Uh, but in the meantime, if you just can't get enough of my golden pipes every two weeks, or my re- or my rants, or my very cleverly, carefully worded insults. Uh, there's now a whole other, a whole other medium, in which you can take in my opinions. Uh, I am one of the newest bloggers at a brand new website called FPG News. Um, it is founded by my fellow former 411 Mania uh, alum Stuart Lang. Um, and there's several other 411 misfits who are going to be on board, on board as contributors. Um, and in fact, I am proud. I am very, very proud to announce that tonight, after I get off the air, I am going to be putting the finishing touches on the return, the remastered return of my old music column, "Give Life Back to Music." Um, it is an album by album look at the careers of my, favorite, of my favorite artists in my discography, and that's covering a lot more ground than you would think it would. And we're starting out by kind of, well, kind of, uh, kind of coming in the same way that I did on 411, because I am going to be revisiting every album from start to finish in the career of Kanye West. Oh, this is bound to engender some polarizing responses. <laughs> um, you can look for that Saturday afternoon. Again, I'm finishing that up tonight. I think Stuart is going to post it tomorrow, but I couldn't swear entirely by that. And I also have another column that I'm going to try to get up this week in which I'm really going to look a little more in depth at the entitlement that has started pervading geek culture and more specifically looking at it through the lens of the absolute ridiculousness of, <laughs> of the backlash against critics who are already giving Suicide Squad negative re- reviews, despite the fact that they saw the early screenings, they've seen it, 
and the vast majority of the 17,000 people who are now calling for the site to be shut down haven't because it doesn't hit theaters until tomorrow. So you can look for that. Um, I also plan to do some gaming news writing. I'll probably be doing a few more album reviews eventually, but for the time being, I can guarantee you that Give Life Back to Music Remastered is going to be at least a weekly column. Uh, look forward every Friday, every Friday and Saturday. And in the meantime, um, I'll be around on any podcast that will have me. Uh, my uh, Long Road to Ruin is always, and the, and the Rob Legend Broadcasting Network, is always going to be my home. Um, I am still working on getting the resources together to start making Charisma Roll with Ann Alberti and Jeremy Hulsoff. That's becoming a tech and money issue more than anything else. But I'm working on it. <laughs> um, I want to get that out by the end of twenty, by the end of 2016, if at all possible. But in the meantime, that's me being a busy little bee. Mark, thank you as always. You're almost as great a broadcast partner as you are a friend, and that is saying a lot. And to everybody else out, out there, thank you very much. Geek responsibly, and never dull your colors for someone else's a can bus. Thank you very much, Sean. Uh, again, thank you, Andrew. Just one, one quick plug, one reminder, really. Uh, this was Jason Bourne week. Yesterday, we reviewed the new Jason Bourne movie, Robert Winfrey and I. Um, a fun time was had by both of us screaming at one another about it. You, you wouldn't think this a terrible, boring, not terrible, this a boring movie would uh, have engendered such passion between the two of us, but we put more passion into that review than they put into that entire movie. So go ahead and uh, give, give that a listen. Um, come back and give this a listen again. Next week, we will be reviewing Suicide Squad, and we will also be readdressing the stupid issue with Rotten Tomatoes, and I will try not to re-embrace alcohol as a means of getting through life. Um, so with that said, <laughs> my pet alcoholism, I bid you a fond farewell. Uh, Long Road to Road, we'll see you in October with the old Hannibal Lecter. In the meantime, be well, be safe, and behave.